Welcome to the Doctrine Matters Podcast, where we seek to equip the church to understand and live out its faith. I'm your host, Stephen Dew. I'm the preaching pastor at South Caraway Baptist Church in Jonesboro, Arkansas. We want to thank you for joining us today, and let's get right to today's episode. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the podcast. We have something a little bit different here today that we're going to do, and uh, we are going to play our church's midweek Bible study. Now, if you are like us all across the country, you are having Zoom Bible studies, Facebook Live Bible studies, uh, YouTube Live Bible studies. There's a lot of different ways that you can do this live Bible study and sermons. So uh, basically, I just want to try this out just to see how it sounds on everything. So uh, if you want to listen to our Wednesday night Bible study through Proverbs chapter 8, feel free to just listen. And uh, if not, then feel free not to listen. So this is our Wednesday evening Bible study from April Fool's Day, April the 1st, 2020. And uh, one of the men in our church is leading this Bible study. I'm not the main leader of this Bible study, but a brother named Philip Powers is leading, and he does a great job. So with that being said, let's just get right to it. It's a Zoom, so uh, the quality may not be as good as uh, in some other things, but nonetheless, we're going to give it a shot. So with that being said, Proverbs chapter 8, led by Philip Powers. Enjoy. And amen. So with that being said, we are continuing our study of the book of Proverbs, and we are in chapter 8 this evening. And so if you have your Bible and you'd like to open up to Proverbs chapter 8, um, that's where we will be this evening. Stephen asked me to teach, and I was glad to do that this evening. So Stephen, thank you for this opportunity. Um, Proverbs chapter 8. Um, and so by way of recap, I would like to review that uh, the first nine chapters of Proverbs function as a sort of introduction. Uh, they lay the con conceptual and theological foundation for all that will follow. And when we get to chapter 10, in a few weeks, you're going to uh, see that there's a significant transition in style of content or be uh, confronted with the more familiar style of Proverbs, the rhyming couplet. Uh, but, but here in the first nine chapters, we have a sort of introduction, um, a sort of prolegomena, if you will. That's just a fancy word that just means things that are said first. Uh, but it's just the introduction. And, and everything that we've said for these first seven chapters has been moving toward chapter eight. Chapter eight is the climax of this introduction. It is the um, piece de resistance. It is the, the high point of this introduction. It's where everything has been moving. And so in order to set the scene, I'd like to recall uh, what uh, Nathan introduced us to last week back in chapter 7. In chapter 7 and verse 10, uh, excuse me, verse 9, we were introduced to a character. Verse 9 of chapter 7 says, At twilight, in the evening, in the dark of the night, a woman came to meet him, dressed like a prostitute, having a hidden agenda. She was loud and defiant, and her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, she lurks at every corner. And so we had a scene that was set, a sort of a sketchy scene, a sinister scene, a dark scene that was set. And by contrast, when we step into chapter 8, um, we have a huge contrast with the, the, the Lady Folly, the seductress is now going to be contrasted with Lady Wisdom. 
the main character, if you will, and she's going to step to the forefront and give us her climactic uh, uh, address, an invitation, if you will, into God's ways. You may recall that we actually were introduced to Lady Wisdom um, back in chapter 1, um, all the way back in chapter 1. You don't have to turn there, but chapter 1, verse 20, Wisdom calls out in the street. She makes her voice heard in the public square. She cries out above the commotion. She speaks at the entrance of the city gates. And so we met her back then, but now she's going to step to the forefront of the scene, so to speak, and uh, just lay it out for us. Basically, she's going to lay it all on the line here and give us her invitation. And so as we think about Lady Wisdom, we need to remember that this is a personification of the concept of wisdom. Uh, in Hebrew, the word for wisdom is a feminine noun, and so it's very natural for uh, Solomon to pick up that uh, concept and personify it as a woman. Now, this does not mean that 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 there is a separate entity in the divine in the divine Trinity known as wisdom, a feminine being. That is not what this means, and we don't want to go there. But we do want to recognize that this is a poetic device, a literary device, meant to help us convey and 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 uh, to see in a more vivid way, in a more dramatic way, um, God's invitation to wisdom. And so that's why we have the character of wisdom portrayed as a woman. It's a, a dramatic portrayal, if you will, to help us visualize and conceptualize um, this invitation that is being made. And so we're in chapter eight. And uh, so let's just jump in here and uh, jump into verse one. So verse one of chapter eight says, doesn't wisdom call out? Doesn't understanding make her voice heard. At the heights overlooking the road, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates leading into the city, the main entrance, she cries out. People, I call out to you. My cry is to the children of Adam. And let's just stop right there. So obviously, in contrast to Lady, uh, Lady Folly, the seductress that we met in chapter 7, here wisdom steps to the forefront, and she steps right onto the, the center of public commerce. When it talks about the crosswords uh, beside the city gates at the main entrance. In the ancient day, this would have been the center of public activity, the center of culture, and the center of trade, the center of economic activity. It's where all of the business of the city took place. And so instead of hiding in alleyways, instead of hiding on the street corners in the dark, wisdom uh, steps onto the scene in the middle of the light. She steps into the public square and makes her address uh, universal. And so what we can learn from this, I think about what we learn here about God, is that God is knowable and that he wants to be known, right? Um, whereas Lady uh, Folly hid in the, hid in the darkness on the, in the alleyways and kind of whispered, uh, here God makes his address in the full view of, of all of humanity. In fact, she addresses the children of Adam in verse 4. And so this tells us that God uh, wants to be known and that he is knowable, that there is no uh, mystical gym gymnastics that we need to do, no special exercises that we need to uh, click off. Uh, there's nothing, no, no hoops to jump through, no special trade that we need to uh, engage in to know God, that he has revealed himself in a way that is knowable. And he wants to be known. Um, and that's very important for us to understand about God. Uh, that he has revealed himself. This is what Paul said in Romans chapter 1, that his divine attributes and eternal nature have been seen through what has been made, so that men are without excuse. And so here we have wisdom uh, uh, personified, stepping onto the scene and addressing all of humanity. Um, and so what we learn from this is that the gospel 
has a general call, a, a general invitation that is acceptable, that is offered to all. Um, I want to read, I found this quote uh, from the Canons of Dort. Um, and if you don't know, the Canons of Dort are that document from the Reformation era from which we get the five points of so-called Calvinism, although I hate that term. But the Canons of Dort, this is from chapter 2, article 5. It says, it is the promise of the gospel that whoever believes in Christ crucified shall not perish, but have eternal life. This promise, together with the command to repent and believe, ought to be announced and declared without differentiation or discrimination to all nations and peoples to whom God in his good pleasure sends the gospel. And so the point here is that when we proclaim the gospel, when we share the good news of what God has done, we are to offer it to all individuals that it is not up to us to know who has been predestined or elected to salvation. Um, that is not for us to know. Those uh, specifics are hidden in the secret pleasures of God's will. But ours is to offer the invitation indiscriminately, to offer it universally, to invite all to believe and to leave the results up to God. And that's what's going on here. God wisdom is making an invitation that is universally offered uh, in the middle of the public. She says in verse four, people I call out, my cry is to the children of Adam. In other words, it is universally applied, universally available. And so she carries on in verse five, learn to be shrewd, you who are inexperienced, develop common sense, you who are foolish. Listen, for I speak of noble things and what my lips say is right, for my mouth tells the truth and wickedness is detestable to my lips. All the words from my mouth are righteous. None of them are deceptive or perverse. All of them are clear to the perceptive and right to those who discover knowledge. So let's stop right there. So not only do we learn in this passage that God is knowable and that he wants to be known, but we also learn here in this passage that his word is fundamentally clear. And this is a, a conviction that we must have as we come to read the scriptures and attempt to interpret it, that God's word is fundamentally clear, that, that it's so simple a child can understand it. Uh, and by contrast, that it is also so complex and deep that the greatest minds can never fully mine its depths. But we must have the conviction that God's words are fundamentally clear. As it says in verse 9, all of them are clear to the perceptive and right to those who discover knowledge. This is a theological concept called the perspicuity of Scripture. P-E-R-S-P-I-C-U-I-T-Y. Perspicuity. Um, it just means that, that Scripture is fundamentally clear, that even the, those of mean, and mean is an old word that means simple, understanding can understand the main concepts, that God sent his son to die on the cross for sin, and that those who believe in him can have eternal life. That doesn't mean that there's nothing that's hard to understand, nothing that's challenging, nothing that's complex, but it does mean that on the main truths, the word is fundamentally clear and can be understood by those who are genuinely interested. So we must understand that God's word is fundamentally clear, that his invitation has been made knowable. And so wisdom goes on, verse 10, accept my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than pure gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and nothing desirable can equal it. Again, emphasizing the value of wisdom. We've seen this throughout the first seven chapters, uh, that wisdom is more valuable, that God's ways are more valuable than earthly treasures. Uh, so this is, again, reinforcing those ideas. Verse 12, 
She speaks I wisdom, share a home with shrewdness and have knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct and perverse speech. I possess good advice and sound wisdom. I have understanding and strength. So if you were, I don't know if you're the kind of person that underlines or highlights or circles in your Bible, but if I were you, I would take a pen or highlighter and highlight that first line of verse 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And again, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible, um, but the point is clear. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. We've already seen that the theme of Proverbs is the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or of knowledge. And so here, uh, Solomon goes on to say that the fear to fear the Lord is to hate evil. And so I do want to try to uh, open us up for a little bit of dialogue. And so I would like to hear from you um, what you think it might mean to hate evil and how that relates to fearing God. What, what does that mean? Um, what do you think? What does it mean to fear the Lord is to hate evil? Kayla says to hate anything that is of the world. That's a good answer. Any others? Any other ideas of what it means to hate evil? To hate what God hates. I like that answer, Jordan. Um, and Pastor Stephen, a couple of weeks ago, we saw uh, in chapter six where uh, you may, and you can just turn back a page. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, chapter six, verse 16, the Lord hates six things. In fact, seven are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that plots wicked schemes, feet eager to run to evil, a lying witness who gives false testimony, and one who stirs up trouble among brothers. So Pastor Stephen asked us, what does God hate? Who does God hate? And it's very clear from this sec uh, section of Scripture that God hates sin and that he hates those who are, um, who are ruled by sin. And so this says to fear the Lord is to hate evil. But this idea of hate, and that's a very strong word. And I think it was chosen by Solomon on purpose. But when we think of hate, we tend to think of um, Repulsion, disgust, um, aversion, uh, passionate dislike. But in the Hebrew, the word hate also carries the idea of volitional rejection. It's more than just a great distaste for evil. It is a volitional rejection. It means that I refuse to do evil. To hate evil is not to do it. Um, and so when it says to fear the Lord is to hate evil. It means that we fear the Lord by not doing evil. And I think that's very important to realize that there is a volitional aspect, not just a great, uh, not just our emotional distaste, but also volitional rejection. And this is very akin to the idea of repentance. Repentance is a volitional turn away from sin and toward God. And so this is in keeping with what Solomon says here, to fear the Lord is to hate evil. And Jordan, I think you're exactly right when you said that it's learning to hate the things that God hates, and to love the things that God loves. You know, this language is also picked up in the Psalms. We read where the psalmist often write, I hate evildoers. I hate those that defile your name. I hate those that uh, worship idols, blah, on and on. We read about that in the Psalms. And it's very, I don't know, 
unsettling for me to think about hating others. You know, because the Bible says, you know, people tell us the Bible says we're supposed to love everybody, aren't we? I mean, God is love, and we're supposed to love our brothers, and and God is love. But um, love, as we read in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, love um, is a love that loves in truth, and truth is um, the opposite of sin or evil. And so, um, we are to hate evil, and we hate that people we love and people we know are consumed with evil, and we lament it, and we. Um, mourn over it. We mourn over those lives that are consumed by it. That's fearing the Lord is hating evil. And so wisdom goes on to say, I hate arrogant pride and evil conduct and perverse speech. I possess good advice and sound wisdom. I have understanding and strength. Verse 15. It is by me that kings reign and rulers enact just law. By me, princes lead, as do nobles and all righteous judges. Um, hang on just a minute. Winnie? Will you go get me a glass of water, please? Sorry about that. Um, so here we see that rulership, leadership, rightly defined, is defined by wisdom. Um, in fact, we're gonna and we're gonna see this in some of the proverbs. You may be familiar with the one that says the king's heart is like a river in the Lord's hand; he turns it wherever he wills. And uh, there are many others that refer to kings and how they rule and how they lead. And what we see here is that good human leadership is leadership that is ordered after the wisdom of God. And when we order our leadership according to folly or according to foolishness, um, that is something that results in destruction. And we're going to see that played out before our eyes as we work through the remaining chapters of Proverbs. I want to get to ver uh, verse 17. I love those who love me and those who search for me find me. With me are riches and honor, lasting wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than solid gold, and my harvest pure than pure silver. I walk in the ways of righteousness along the paths of justice, giving wealth as an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. All right. I think this is a good one for us to camp out on and ask another question. Um, we all know what the prosperity gospel is. Um, it is the idea that God wants us to be rich and healthy and wealthy and, and wise. That's a saying we have in our culture. And uh, this says that those who walk in the ways of wisdom uh, will receive wealth uh, and they have their treasuries filled. And so who would like to explain for me why this is not supporting the prosperity gospel while I get a drink of water? Jeremiah's got that. I don't see Jeremiah. Oh, there he is. So, so are we in agreement then that this is promoting the prosperity gospel? That if we walk according to God's ways, we'll have full bank accounts and never get sick? Absolutely not, because you have to take the totality of Scripture, obviously. We can't just absolutely in, we can't hone in on this one section of Scripture and think, oh, well, health and wealth and prosperity, because uh, if we can do that, and I think that's what a lot of these guys do, is they manipulate the text, and uh, they don't preach and teach the whole counsel of God, obviously, because when you start looking at all of the suffering and all of the things that take place, especially in the life of a believer, we can 
clearly using the totality of scripture come to the understanding that uh, this is not the prosperity gospel as we know it today. Thank you, Pastor Stephen. We're told not to lay up treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven. Um, and that's part of that whole totality of scripture thing, right? But mm -hmm. uh, I think on top of that, I mean, some of the, the wisdom literature, uh, some of it, some of it, is it, is it not also teaching that um, you, you're blessed for acting wisely? Um, and some of that, some of that is sometimes physical blessings. Um, you're, you're prospered by um, acting in a wise manner. Um, there, there, there are blessings that come by wisdom. Um, but, uh, but it's not, it's not the focus. And as far as, um, you know, we, I can't remember, it was recent, there was a Sunday school class or a Wednesday night class where we talked about, um, that, uh, that God would, would give you the desires of your heart. Um, but but that was because the desires of your heart were going to be changed into the the desires of godliness. Um, so, you know, what is it? What what is the wisest the wisest thing to desire? It's not things that are going to be, you know, burn up and perish and are going to go away and. A relatively short period of time but those things that are eternal and last forever those that's that's wisdom that's what's wisely desired um, absolutely I thought I, Nathan were you gonna say something I saw you reaching uh, I was just gonna say I think that that uh, the answer for this particular passage to your question is why does this not address uh, or why does this not um, supporting prosperity gospel is in verse 18 when he says, and I'm reading from the ESV, but he says, riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. Right. Something eternal, uh, greater than this, than the earthly wealth uh, that we see in, that we think we see in verse 21, but those treasuries, is, that inheritance is, is eternal. Absolutely. And that's a good point. I, I, would, I would say also that the reason this is not prosperity gospel is because this is not a promise. And we have to make sure we understand the difference between a proverb and a promise. And this is going to come up again and again as we get into chapter 10 and following. But the proverbs are general truths. They are not meant to be absolute promises in every case. But they present us with um, the way things work most of the time. And that's the way a proverb works. So we, for in our own culture, we might think of a proverb like... Um, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Right? That's not an absolute promise. It doesn't tell me that if I eat an apple every day, then I will never have to go to the doctor. That, is, that would be an absolute promise, and that would be a misunderstanding of the proverb. What the proverb means is that if I eat a generally nutritious diet, then I will probably not be gravely ill. It's a general truth, and that's what proverbs are, even in the biblical literature. And so you're right. Craig, you said this, when we walk according to the ways of God, in general, we can expect 
to be successful, to flourish. And we, I think we need to recover this idea of human flourishing. And this is going to come up again when we get to the end of the chapter. But if we, let me ask you, if we conduct our businesses with integrity and honesty and justice, then we will likely be successful in a general sense. Right? It's not an absolute promise. It doesn't mean it's true in 100% of cases. But in a general way, if we operate according to the ways of God, then we can expect to receive his blessings. It doesn't mean we will never suffer. It doesn't mean we won't be persecuted. It doesn't mean that we don't still live in a fallen world that is affected by sin and evil and sickness and tragedy. But the, what the, the principle that the Proverbs lay out, and we'll see this time and again, is that if we, when we walk according to the ways of God, we can generally expect to reap the blessings of godliness. And I think that's what's going on here. And again, we're going to see this played out throughout the rest of the, of the chapter. But, but that's I think, is the biggest difference, is that prosperity gospel would claim this as a promise. And it's not intended to be a promise. It's a general truth that is true most of the time. So we might think of, for example, the, the example of Job. Right? Job was a righteous man. He walked according to the ways of God, and yet he still suffered greatly. Right? So when we take the wisdom literature as a whole, we not only have Proverbs, but we also have Job, and we also have Ecclesiastes, and we also have Song of Solomon. And so to, to have a fully orbed, a fully developed understanding of wisdom, we need all of these books to work in concert. But here in the Proverbs, we have to remember that these are general truths. Um, moving on here, then, in verse 22, and this is probably my favorite section of this entire um, chapter, but in verse 22, we read, The Lord acquired me at the beginning of his creation, before his works of long ago. I was formed before ancient times, from the beginning, before the earth began. I was born when there were no watery depths and no springs filled with water. Before the mountains were established, prior to the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the land, the fields, or the first soil on earth, I was there when he established the heavens, when he laid out the horizon on the surface of the ocean, when he placed the skies above, when the fountains of the ocean gushed out, when he set a limit for the sea so that the waters would not violate his command, when he laid out the foundations of the earth, I was a skilled craftsman beside him. I was his delight every day, always rejoicing before him. I was rejoicing in his inhabited world, delighting in the children of Adam. And so a few weeks ago, when I was last with you, we were in chapter 3, and we referred to this section, and I, met, and I suggested to you that this is the section uh, that lays behind John's use of the Word. And when he, in John 1, 1, when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And all, and all that was made was made through him. And so I believe that it is this Jewish wisdom concept that lays behind and informs John's concept of the eternal word. And so we have to be very careful here because in this section we read words like created and born and formed, right? And we must not apply those to the person of Christ in totality. That, that would be a heresy called Arianism. Arius was a, uh, a monk who lived in the third century that believed that Christ was a created being. We do not believe that. Nicaea says that he is consubstantial with the Father, same God of same God, eternally Son, right? Nevertheless, the scriptures refer to him as the firstborn of all creation. Let me read you another passage, and uh, this one from um, the Apostle Paul 
in Colossians chapter 1. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But Colossians chapter 1 says this in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, where the things on earth, the things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shed on the cross. And so here we get a picture of God's wisdom and eternality. Um, it's um, it, it's outlasted his creation. It precedes his creation. And again, this is a part of his invitation for us to heed wisdom because it is um, the firstborn of all creation. He is Christ is the firstborn of all creation. And so here, I think we get, we do get a glimpse into the role of the Word, uh, the role of the Eternal Son uh, in the created order, um, and and uh, how He was there even in the beginning. Um, and how he was with God. And so we can look out and we can look at our created world and we can see God's wisdom on display in general revelation. Um, I just think it's a beautiful image of Christ. Um, any thoughts here on this section? Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago. I don't want to linger on it, but any thoughts here on uh, the word and wisdom? You all agree with me that this is a picture of Christ. Shake your heads, yes. Okay, good. Everybody's shaking their heads, yes. <laughs> Testing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry for the echo. Can you hear me, Philip? I can. So I wanted to comment on verse 27. Have you covered verse 27? I'm sorry. I mean, just, just in passing, but go ahead. So something you pointed out really good. Yes, Christ is in mind. But I think wisdom here is a strong attribute of God, right? So when we're starting to see how he lays the foundation of the world, this is definitely reminiscent of Genesis chapter 1 and other creation accounts. It's really interesting, verse 27, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, I, was, I noticed this verse comes up in Isaiah and Job. And when you look at the Hebrew word, this word for circle carries the definition of spear, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is really profound because you have in the, perhaps the old, oldest book of the Bible in Job, you see how God is laying the foundations of the world and he creates the world in a spear or the earth as a spear. So to me, this is a strong apologetic that the word of God is powerful. Um, these prophets of old could say things that the, their modern day science would have no, um, they couldn't come anywhere close. And that would make sense because this is the God of the universe, right? He told us exactly how he made it. So many hundreds and thousands of years before our science today confirms that fact. Mm. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremiah. I would just add that, that this is poetic language. And so we want to be careful uh, not to push the language um, to scientific precision. Uh, that this is a poetic description. It's meant to be vivid. It's meant to be dramatic. It's meant to grab our attentions uh, through, our, our, through our imaginations and through our heart. 
Um, that's kind of the, idea, the, the way the language works here. And so we want to be careful to push it all the way to its to scientific precision, because that's not the way the language was intended to work. But I, I understand what you're saying, and I agree with you um, completely. So let's get the last five verses. And this is where I want to pick up the idea of human flourishing. Verse 32 says, and now, sons, listen to me. Those who keep my ways are happy. Listen to instruction and be wise. Don't ignore it. Anyone who listens to me is happy, watching at my doors every day, waiting by the posts of my doorway. But the one who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But the one who misses me harms himself, and all who hate me love death. So I will just tell you, one of my I like the Christian Standard Bible. That's the Bible that I read and preach from. But my, my primary criticism of it is it's um, how it uses the word happy in the place of blessed. I'll tell you why. Because culturally, we have a grave misconception about happiness. You all know this. Happiness culturally tends, seems to mean um, uh, the absence of, of discomfort. Um, it seems to mean the, it seems to mean pleasure. It seems to mean uh, ease. Um, and that's not what is carried in the idea here when we read uh, verse 32, all now, and now sons, listen to me, those who keep my ways are happy. Uh, if you're reading from one of the more traditional translations, yours probably says, blessed here. And I understand why the Christian standard chose to go ha with happy, because blessed is a word that is pretty unfamiliar to most modern readers. But I do think we need to recover the idea of what it means to be blessed. And this is where I want us to think about human flourishing, that the, the fullest extent of what it means to be human can only be experienced when we are living according to the ways of God. That that is what it means to be blessed in this sense. That it means to, to experience the fullness of humanity the way God is in, has designed it to be experienced. That we can only experience the fullness of our humanity when we walk according to the ways of God. When we fear the Lord and hate evil. And that's what it means here when it says, those who keep my ways are happy. That it's only through keeping his ways that we will find ultimate satisfaction and the greatest joys and the deepest pleasures. And all that the world has to offer in terms of joy and pleasure and happiness is counterfeit and temporary. We saw that, didn't we, last week uh, in the story of the seductress. Uh, she was only able to offer temporary uh, happiness, uh, temporary pleasures, temporary solutions. But what God have, offers us is ultimate satisfaction, uh, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate pleasures. And so those who keep my ways are happy. Those who keep my ways are blessed. Those who keep my ways truly flourish the way God intended us to flourish. And so he says, she says, listen to my instruction and be wise and do not ignore it. Verse 35, for the one who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. And so I'm going to ask this question uh, and I expect you to answer. Um, is this teaching legalism? Well, let's just parade out all of the, all the heresies, right? This says the one who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. So is this telling us that if we obey God, then we will in turn receive his grace? Not everybody at once. 
And that's that's like a T-ball uh, hit right there. <laughs> Nathan's got this. Can you repeat the question? Yeah, so the verse says, and this is the Christian Standard Translation, for the one who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. And so my question is, does this mean if we walk according to God's ways, obey his commands, that we in turn will receive from him grace and blessing? Because that's the idea of legalism, right? It's that if I'm good enough, then I will receive from God a reward of blessing and favor and grace. I would say, that what, go ahead, Jordan. Let me see how to word it. Um, grace is not something to be merited. Um, rather, us walking in his ways would be the product of his grace. Um, we could, we could, who's, Who's the me here? It's wisdom. It's wisdom, right? Mm -hmm. So, he who finds wisdom, could we replace me with wisdom there? He who, whoever finds wisdom finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. And yes, what's, what's the source of that wisdom? What is what what is the beginning of wisdom? Well, the beginning is the fear of the Lord, right? So what would it mean to find to find wisdom here? What is what is that even talking about? I'm waiting for somebody else to answer. So remember, wisdom has been presented to us as uh, our first mate. If we go back to chapter 5, we're told to enjoy the spouse, the wife of our youth, to be fully satisfied in her. And so that spouse that's talked about in chapter 5, he is Lady Wisdom. Again, it's a vivid way of grabbing our attention. And it talks about our covenant with God, that we are in a covenant with him. Uh, it's called the new covenant, and we are his. And so obtains is perhaps a, a bad translation, but for the one who finds me, the one who walks in my ways, experiences grace. Not receives it, not earns it, but experiences in a new way. Again, in the idea of being blessed, of reaping what we sow, so to speak, obtains favor from the Lord. Uh, but the one who misses me harms himself, and all who hate me love death. And so again, we're reinforcing uh, the two ways. Right, And we've seen this throughout, and we're going to see it again in chapter 9. In chapter 9, just as a preview, you're going to again see Lady Wisdom, and you're going to see Lady Folly, and they're going to be set in contrast. And the invitation has been laid. You will either choose Lady Wisdom, or you will choose Lady Folly. And there is no gray area. There is no fence to walk. There's no riding the fence to do. Um, you're either kind of for God or against him, and that is the perspective of the Proverbs, that you either walk the way of wisdom or you're the walk the way of folly. The way of wisdom leads to life, and the way of folly leads to death. And so when we walk in God's ways, when we fear him and trust in him and remain loyal to him, and, and when we live according to what he has laid out for us, 
again, we will experience his grace in our lives. We'll experience his favor, not in a way of merit or earning, but in a way of enjoying the covenant relationship that we have with him. Is that fair? Shake your heads, yes. <laughs> and I think verse 36 is, uh, verse 36 is sobering for me. The one who misses me harms himself. So I think that reveals the true nature of sin, right? When we reject God, and when we walk in the path of sin, we're really reaping harm to ourselves. We're doing more harm to ourselves than good. Um, and we also harm others. And all who hate me, it says, love death. So again, we see the reinforcement of you either hate God or you love him. You either walk according to his ways and experience life, or you reject him and walk in death. I mean, that is the picture that's being painted here, and I think will be reinforced in chapter 9. Are there any final thoughts about anything we've considered this evening? Any questions, comments, outbursts? So there, there, there is no gray area in that. It's black or white. Yes, I believe that is the picture that the Proverbs paint for us. Um, and, and again, we're going to see this reinforced. There's two ways, the way of wisdom and the way of folly, and there is no middle ground. I think we see that reinforced time and again throughout the Proverbs. It's a theme that will continue to be developed as we get into the, the chapters 10 and following. All right. Well, with that being said, nobody else has anything to say. I'll kick it to you, Pastor Stephen. I've got one thing. Sorry, he's already kicked it to me, Jordan. <laughs> okay, well, this was actually Callie, so maybe you might let her speak. I will allow when it. You, when you said there's no middle ground, um, Callie asked me, she said, so I wonder if he, you just ask it, you know what you're saying. I just was wondering if you would agree that there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. Have you heard people say that? I have heard the idea, um, and and I just listened to Pastor Stevens uh, podcast today on repentance on the way home, and he was uh, talking about that good old Baptist word uh, backslidden. I'm sure you've all heard it before. Uh, I think it is possible for for those who follow Christ to fall into a season of sin. I don't think it will be comfortable. I think the Spirit will convict. And I think we can do, I think, you know, we may try to do all we can to deaden, to ignore, to nullify the Spirit's conviction in their lives, um, probably to, without success, because eventually he'll get our attention. But I do believe it is possible for us to fall into a, a, a sin, a season of sin, perhaps. Um, but I do believe the Spirit will convict. Um, and I think, Stephen, you said in your podcast that some, even when, when you're tempted, um, even before you commit the sin, you feel the conviction coming on. And I, I feel that as well from time to time when I face temptations in my life, that the conviction sets in before the act is actually done. Um, and that's the spirit. And so I believe the spirit does work. Um, so, again, depends on your definition of carnal Christian, but I do believe it's possible for Christians to live in a time of, of sin. Uh, we have that that war going on inside of us, Galatians chapter uh, five and six, the, the spirit wages against the flesh and the flesh wages war against the spirit. I mean, we live in that conflict sometimes, uh, but the spirit will continue to have his work. And sometimes we uh, cooperate with him and sometimes he drags us kicking and screaming. 
uh, but he will have his work in our life. I don't know. What do you think, Pastor Stephen? I think uh, I'm, I'm with you. I think um, a real Christian that's struggling in a time of sin is going to be probably the most miserable that they've ever been. Um, they make and put up a front. They make and act like they're okay, but really they're not going to be okay. Uh, now, somebody that's just the opposite of that, they would say, yes, I'm a Christian. I, I got saved when I was 12. Not, I mean, people can get saved at 12. Don't hear me wrong, but uh, I got saved. I got baptized, but their life is uh, showing nothing but uh, an unregenerate person. Like if they're living like they're, they've never been saved to begin with, and they're just fine with that. They, they're, they're what we would say they're culturally happy. And then that would be, I think, what Callie is saying is somebody that's a, I think, but a carnal Christian, somebody that says they're a believer but lives nothing like it is one of those that would probably fall into that category because somebody that is a Christian and is living in a season of sin will be miserable. So there's a big difference there, although that one that's miserable may be able to cover it up on the outside, but it's obviously not going to be uh, anything that they're going to be proud of. Yeah, there's also, um, uh, again, uh, I agree 100% with all that. There's there's two definitions of carnal because someone someone a while back uh, said, hey, uh, the Bible talk, does talk about a carnal Christian. I believe in King James Version, Paul says I'm carnal. And so you got to define what you mean by that. Testing. Um, Philip, can you hear me? Oh. So, um, so a takeaway I get from Proverbs 8 is some Bible headings say the excellence of wisdom. So we're walking away with wisdom that comes from above. And so um, in verses 10 and 11, take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. This is very reminiscent of Proverbs chapter 2 that just says, Take heart to understanding, and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. And so for me, this is the, the word of God over the years i've been able to see man this is so much more precious than anything else this world has to offer it's the word of god that gives us a divine insight and by it we are made wiser than people in this world we we see the psalmist in psalm 119 just says we have divine insight by the law of the lord and so this is what proverbs this is why i love reading a chapter day whatever month day of the month it is because you know this is just i like it's nuggets of truth, but it's never disconnected from the embodiment of who Christ is. So always treasuring and honoring God's word in our heart. There's nothing else in this world that compares to that. So we need to pray for wisdom like James 1.5 says, because he's always going to give it to us. But the means in which he's going to give us um, wisdom is by his word. So that is ultimately it boils down to having a relationship with God. He speaks to us, to us through his word, and we speak back to in prayer. So if we really do love the Lord, we should desire to spend precious time.